welcome back to the bazaar your one-stop shop for everything bizarre last week we covered lizzie borden and i really really enjoyed covering that case and it got a decent amount of feedback too so that was a good first pick uh we're gonna switch gears a little bit this week and talk about killer kids i researched five cases and narrowed it down to three just because some of them were so intricate that they were a lot longer than i anticipated them to be so keep a lookout i might release like an episode 2.5 with the leftover cases or i might just save them for a part two of this at some point either way i tried to pick the cases that were driven by like sadism and like psychopathic tendencies rather than like accidental murders or kids who didn't understand like these kids were well aware of what they were doing, which makes it 10 times fucking creepier. Before we get into that though, I need to talk about this with someone who knows what the number 41 means because it's driving me insane. So it's been like a month at this point where every single day, multiple times a day, the number 41 appears somewhere. Like as I'm saying this, I'm at the 41st bar of the recording, which I don't really know what that means, but it's still the number 41. When I look at the time, it'll be like 3.41, 8.41, 10.41 every single day. My total when I'm buying something will be like whatever in 41 cents. It's getting out of hand. Like I actually don't know what it means and it's really starting to freak me out. So if anyone knows what the number 41 indicates, please let me know. Anyway, let's get into Killer Kids. We're first going to cover Mary Flora Bell, who at the ripe age of 10 years old became the Tyneside Strangler. This is a relatively popular case. I've definitely seen her mugshot before researching her for this podcast episode. However, I did not know how creepy it actually was. Mary was born May 26, 1956 in Corbridge, England to an Elizabeth McCricket and her presumed but not confirmed father, William Bell. Mary was Betty Bell's second child, born when Betty was only 17. Mary was a baby when Betty married William Billy Bell, so it is unconfirmed whether or not he was the biological father, but Mary knew him as her dad regardless. Betty was a local prostitute and often worked in Glasgow, leaving her children to Billy Bell when he was around. Uh, He was described as a violent alcoholic and a habitual armed robber, so he could have been out robbing things instead of watching the children. Mary was unwanted from the time she was born. Her aunt, Issa McCricket, so mom's sister, reported that within minutes of her birth, Betty was angry with hospital staff for trying to place the baby in her arms and said, quote, take the thing away from me. Unfortunately, a lot of these killer kids come from a home without a loving mother, so Sigmund Freud is probably stoked to hear that. Like, he was right. Anyways... After Mary was taken home from the hospital by her lovely mother, the neglect and abuse followed. As a baby, toddler, and young child, Mary suffered a lot of injuries in house accidents when she was alone with the mother. It's unclear whether Betty was intentionally negligent or just actively trying to hurt and kill her daughter. Uh, There were several incidents, including Betty dropping Mary from a first floor window, giving an accidental overdose of sleeping pills, and selling Mary to an unstable woman that couldn't have kids of her own, which resulted in Mary's older sister, Catherine, having to travel across Newcastle to return Mary back home. 
At some point, Mary also witnessed her five-year-old friend run over and killed by a bus. Because of all of this, Mary's other family members insisted on taking custody of Mary, and even though Betty did not like her daughter very much, she refused and would not let anyone else take her daughter. I couldn't figure out whether it was just Mary that Betty didn't like or if she treated Catherine like this as well, but either way, Mary was kind of set up for some shitty things to come. As if that wasn't enough trauma for one child to go through, Betty began allowing or even encouraging her clients to abuse Mary in sadomasochistic sessions by the mid-1960s. When Mary recalled these incidents in later years, she referred to her mother as a dominant woman in the bedroom and that she showed no remorse in offering Mary to her clients. As Mary grew to the school age, she began displaying incredibly disturbing and erratic behavior both at home and at school, including mood swings, chronic bedwetting, fighting with both genders, and attempting to strangle and suffocate classmates. In one incident, she attempted to block the trachea of a young girl with sand. A former classmate of Mary's at Delaville Road Junior School was interviewed and said that by 1968, Mary's peers had become used to her behavior and knew what signs to look out for that Mary was about to lash out. According to this classmate, Mary began shaking her head and forming a steely gaze. This indicated that she was about to become violent towards whoever her stare was focused on. As a result, most kids were obviously reluctant to socialize with Mary, but she did find friendship in Norma Joyce Bell, who, despite the same last name, they were not related. Norma was a 13-year-old neighbor, so she was actually older than Mary, but they hung out anyways, and this got Norma into some shit. The first major incident occurred on Saturday, May 11th, 1968, when a three-year-old boy was found dazed and wandering near St. Margaret's Road in Scottswood, England. He reported playing with Mary and Norma atop an air raid shelter when one girl, who he couldn't identify, had pushed him seven feet from the roof to the ground. This caused a severe head laceration, and obviously the parents were pretty pissed, but no matter how hard they questioned him, he could not tell whether it was Mary or Norma who had pushed him. That same day, parents of three small girls reported that Mary and Norma had attempted strangulation of their daughters in a sandpit. That evening, both girls were interviewed and completely denied the incident with the small boy, claiming that they had actually discovered him after he fell. Mary also completely denied the sandpit strangulation incident, but Norma had some things to say about it. According to Norma, Mary said, quote, What happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Norma also reported that in an attempt to throttle the girls, Mary put her hands around their throats until they went purple. Norma claims that she repeatedly asked Mary to stop, but that she went on to do it to another girl named Pauline and a third girl named Susan. Because of their ages, the local authorities ended up just giving them a warning. So just for some context, around the neighborhood at this time, there was a shit ton of urban renewal going around. They were demolishing Victorian-era buildings to upscale them to more modern times. So because of this, there was a bunch of derelict houses, rubble-strewn expanses, and just a bunch of waste ground. And of course... Mary loved playing here. So in the afternoon of May 25th, 1968, Mary brought a young boy named Martin Brown to one of these abandoned houses at 85 St. Margaret Street Road, where she strangled him in the upstairs bedroom. She was believed to have been alone. The body was discovered by three children at about 3.30 p.m. He was found laying on his back with his arms above his head, 
with no signs of violence other than blood specks at the scene and foam around his mouth. A workman named John Hall attempted to perform CPR to no avail, and Martin Brown was proclaimed dead. The next day, Dr. Bernard Knight conducted the postmortem exam. He was once again unable to find any signs of violence and could not identify the cause of death. He did, however, outrule the investigator's theory that the child had died of poisoning through tablet ingestion. As far as I read, Martin Brown's cause of death was never completely identified. The day after Martin Brown's death was actually Mary's 11th birthday, so May 26th. At this time, Mary and Norma broke in and vandalized a nursery in Woodland Crescent. They entered by peeling tiles off of the slate roof. They tore books, overturned desks, smeared ink, and poster paints before leaving the same way they came. The next day, staff discovered and reported the break-in. Upon further investigation, police found four notes that claimed responsibility for Brown's murder with several spelling and grammatical errors, but I'm going to read what they were trying to say, at least from what I gathered. The first note says, I murder so that I may come back. The second note says, we did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. The third note says, fuck off, we murder. Watch out, Fanny and Efsler. The fourth note says, you are mice? Why? Because we murdered Martin Go Brown. You bite? Look out. There are murders about by Fanny and Ald Efsler, you screws. Some of those notes were a lot clearer than others, and some just frankly don't make a lot of sense to me. If you could see, like, the actual spelling and grammar of them, it would make even less sense. Maybe I'll post it on the Instagram at some point. Uh, but I just find that really interesting because if Mary was as smart as she was later discovered to be, she would have known how to write these notes correctly, so it must have been intentional. Anyways, the police dismissed these notes and the break-in as a tasteless prank. Three days after Martin Brown's death and two days after the break-in was the funeral, held on May 29th. That day, both Mary and Norma called the house of Martin's mother, June, asking to see Martin. When June replied that they couldn't because he died, Mary replied, quote, Oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. The girls later reported that the reason they went up to Mother June was in a game of chicken, where they dared each other to go up to her and ask to see Martin, and neither wanted to be the chicken. Months passed before the next incident on July 31st, 1968. This event takes place on one of those wastelands that we had discussed. This one in particular was called the Tin Lizzie, and St. Margaret's Road actually ran parallel to it. So if that doesn't ring any bells, the house that Martin Brown was murdered in actually was on St. Margaret's Road. So they were in a very close vicinity of that location. So that day, Mary and Norma were spotted playing with a three-year-old named Brian Howe. Brian Howe was last seen by his parents outside his house playing with Mary, Norma, a sibling, and the family dog. When he failed to arrive home, relatives and neighbors searched the street frantically. At 11.10 p.m., a search party discovered Brian's body between two large concrete blocks on the Tin Lizzie. When police searched the scene, they noticed a, quote, deliberate but feeble attempt at hiding the body. It was covered in clumps of grass and weed. Cyanosis, which is a blue discoloration, was evident in his lips. There were several bruises and scratches on his neck, and broken scissors were found close to his feet. When the postmortem exam was conducted, it was concluded that Brian died of strangulation about seven and a half hours before his body was discovered. It appeared that the killer had squeezed his nostrils closed with one hand while gripping his throat with the other hand. 
There were numerous puncture wounds on his legs that occurred before death. Sections of his hair had been cut. His genitals were partially mutilated, and there was a crude attempt at carving the letter M in his stomach. The small amount of force used in the murder led the coroner to believe that the perpetrator was a child. There were also gray and maroon fibers found on his clothing and shoes that did not come from the Howe household. Therefore, they must have been transferred to his body by the perpetrator. I can't even imagine being a resident in the town at this time and hearing that a child not only killed another child, but with this level of sadism and carving her initial and all that other, like, just psychotic stuff. Like, obviously it's bad enough that a child killed another kid, but to this extent of violence, and it's just, it's beyond me. The discovery of Brian Howe's body caused a large-scale manhunt with over 100 detectives assigned to the case. Over 1,200 children had been questioned by August 2nd on their whereabouts at the time of the murder. Mary and Norma were brought in for questioning on August 1st after witnesses reported seeing them playing with Brian shortly before he was believed to have died. Norma was very excitable in her interview, while Mary was quiet and observant. However, both girls contradicted themselves and each other consistently, and they were very evasive around the questions. They did both admit to playing with Brian, but denied seeing him after lunchtime. I truly do wonder what the conversation was like between the two girls when they knew they were probably going to be questioned. Like, I wonder if Mary kind of called all the shots and was like, this is what we're going to say, or just how that whole thing went down. The next day, in an attempt to cover her own ass that backfired rapidly, Mary added a statement that she had seen a local 8-year-old boy playing with Brian on the afternoon of his death. She claimed that the boy was hitting Brian and that he had been covered in grass and weeds holding a small pair of scissors. She said, quote, I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with them. One leg was broken or bent. This statement ended up incriminating Mary and convincing Detective Chief Investigator James Dobson that Mary was the killer. Information about the broken scissors found at the scene had not been released to the media and only the police knew about them at this time, so Mary's information in an attempt to frame the local 8-year-old boy actually painted her as the prime suspect. The 8-year-old boy that Mary mentioned was still brought in for questioning and he had a solid alibi at Newcastle International Airport for that afternoon. This alibi was confirmed not only by his parents but by several other witnesses. On August 4th, Norma Bell's parents contacted authorities that their daughter had a confession to make regarding her knowledge of the murders. When DCI Dobson arrived to question Norma, he was very formal towards her and talked stiffly, then immediately asked what she knew. Norma told Dobson that Mary had taken her to the Tin Lizzie and showed her Brian's body. Norma then reported that Mary had showed her how she had strangled the boy and confessed that she liked strangling him. Mary then reportedly described how she had inflicted the marks on Brian's body with a razor blade. Norma then revealed to Dobson the location of the razor blade, and the police later searched the area and discovered it. The marks Norma described were identical to the ones found on Brian's body. So not only had Norma further identified Mary as a suspect, she backed it up with her knowledge of the razor blade's location at the scene. However, she also revealed that she was at the scene at some point and failed to inform authorities of it prior, so she kind of screwed herself over, but a little bit of respect there because she had to have known that was going to bite her in the ass, but she still chose to tell them. 
The next day, Dobson paid Mary a visit in the early hours. She was quite defensive when confronted with comments about how her previous statements held several discrepancies. She reportedly said, quote, You're trying to brainwash me. I will get a solicitor to get me out of this. Later that day, Norma was questioned again and changed her statement again. She admitted that she was present during the murder of Brian Howe. She claimed that Mary had, quote, seemed to go all funny, then pushed the child into the grass and attempted strangulation before saying, quote, my hands are getting thick, take over. Norma then says she ran away from the scene at this time. Following Norma's change statement, a forensic exam on both girls' clothing was performed. It was discovered that the gray fibers from Brian's body were a precise match to a woolen dress owned by Mary. It was also found that the maroon fibers from Brian's shoes matched a skirt owned by Norma. Interestingly enough, and not at all surprising, the gray fibers from Mary's dress were found on Martin's body. Following that exam, DCI Dobson was planning on arresting both girls, but wanted to hold off until after the funeral services for Brian Howe. The services occurred on August 7, 1968, and the funeral was attended by over 200 people. Dobson witnessed Mary standing outside the Howe home while the coffin was being brought from the house at the beginning of the services. He stated later, quote, She stood there laughing, laughing and rubbing her hands. I thought, my God, I've got to bring her in. She'll do another one. That night at around 8 p.m., both girls were charged with the murder of Brian Howe. Mary said, That's all right by me. Norma cried and said, I never. I'll pay you back for this. Following the charge, Mary wrote a statement trying to incriminate Norma and take all the blame off of her. She admitted to being present during the murder, but insisted that Norma committed them. She admitted that they broke into the nurse's station together and wrote the notes. This statement didn't hold much weight in the eyes of Dobson, as he had already witnessed Mary's erratic behavior, and most of them could see that Mary was the dominant figure in the friendship. Naturally, psychological evaluations for both girls followed. Norma was found to be intellectually delayed and a submissive character with a lot of emotional displays. Mary, alternatively, was found to be bright and cunning and had sudden mood swings. She was found to be willing to talk at some times, but would quickly shut down and become quite defensive and sullen. Mary was more extensively evaluated, and the four psychiatrists that examined her concluded that she did not have a mental disorder, but a psychopathic personality disorder. In his official report, Dr. David Westbury said, quote, Mary's social techniques are primitive and take the form of automatic denial, ingratiation, manipulation, complaining, bullying, flight, or violence. At this point, both girls had incriminated themselves in some form and attempted to place the majority of the blame on the other. That, coupled with the psychological evaluations, was enough to host a trial. Mary and Norma appeared as co-defendants for the murder of both boys on a trial that began on December 5, 1968. The trial appeared before Justice Ralph Cusack. Mary was defended by Mr. Harvey Robson, and Norma was defended by R.P. Smith. Both girls were pleading not guilty. I tried several times to pronounce the word anonymity, so we're just going to go with a different way of phrasing this next part. The defense of both girls objected heavily to this decision, but Judge Cusack waived the right to the girls being anonymous on premise of age. The media then publicized names, ages, and photographs of both girls as they sat alongside plain-clothed female police officers in the center of the court. They sat behind legal representatives and within arm's reach of both of their families throughout the entire trial. 
Rudolph Lyons opened the trial at 11.30 a.m. in a statement that lasted six hours. He informed the jury of the, quote, unhappy and distressing task before them due to the nature of the murders and ages of the defendants. He then outlined the similarities in the murder of Martin Brown and Brian Howe, suggesting that both boys were murdered by the same person or people. Lyons displayed circumstances of both deaths and evidence that suggested guilt against one or both girls. He concluded his opening statement by arguing that Mary's dominance and the age difference between the girls did not hold either one of them more responsible. He claimed that the girls acted as a team and were therefore both fully responsible for both deaths. He said that the girls acted, quote, solely for the pleasure and excitement of murder. Both girls well knew that what they did was wrong and what the results would be. On day five of the trial, Norma testified in her own defense. She denied responsibility in either murder, but did admit under cross-examination that she knew of Mary's violent tendencies and her history of attacking children. She also admitted that they had talked about attacking and killing kids of both genders before. Lyons asked Norma if Mary had ever showed her how a child could be killed, and Norma nodded her head. Norma eventually stuck to her statement that Mary had begun to attack and strangle Brian and that Norma had not alerted a nearby group of boys because, quote, I did not know what was going to happen in the first place, end quote, and that Mary had temporarily stopped hurting the boy. When questioned about her own role in the murder, she claims to have never touched Brian. It seems that Norma wasn't questioned as heavily about the murder of Martin Brown because at this point they already believed that murderer had been working alone. Mary then testified in her defense, which was a very elaborate and manipulative show. This lasted four hours, but was briefly adjourned for her to cry in a policewoman's arms. She denied the accusations that she was the one who had murdered the children, insisting that she had observed the body of Martin Brown but had never touched the child. This was when she admitted to the reason why they had gone to Martin Brown's mother and asked to play with him. She also claimed that there were others who could testify that she had gone to them about her knowledge of Martin Brown's death and that it could, quote, get Norma put straight away. Mary claims that Norma was the one who had strangled Brian Howe and that she herself was just, quote, standing and looking, I couldn't move. It was as if some glue was pulling us down, end quote. Mary claimed that Norma had encouraged Brian to lie down if he wanted sweets, telling him, quote, you've got to lie down for the lady to come with the sweets. Mary insisted that Norma was the one to perform strangulation on the boy and that her fingertips and nails were going white. Mary claims to have attempted to prevent the attacks, then said she had failed to inform the authorities out of fear and a misguided sense of loyalty to Norma. Following both girls' testimonies, Norma's mother testified that several months before Brian Howe's murder, she and her husband had witnessed Mary attempting to strangle Norma's younger sister. Mary's grip apparently only released after her husband punched Mary in the shoulder. At this point in the trial, child psychiatrist Ian Fraser testified regarding Norma's mental age. He reported that her mental age was 8 years and 10 months, and that her capacity of right and wrong may have been limited, but she was still aware of the criminality of the acts she may or may not have committed. On December 13th, Norma's defense counsel delivered their closing argument. He emphasized that other than Mary's allegations against Norma, no substantial evidence existed against her. He also stated that being tried together did not indicate that they had worked together. He urged jurors to suppress feelings of outrage and malice and rid the idea that both little girls pay for the actions of one. 
Mary's closing argument followed, and her defense counsel focused on her broken background and dysfunctional family, as well as the blur between fantasy and reality in her mind. This closing argument relied heavily on the testimony from Dr. David Westbury, as he had interviewed Mary several times. He claimed to have a solid view on the abnormal development of Mary's mind that was caused both by genetics and environmental factors. He said that this impaired Mary from facing responsibility for the acts she committed. On December 17th, after nine days of the trial, the jury deliberated for three hours and 25 minutes. Norma Bell was acquitted of all charges, to which she clapped her hands in the courtroom. Mary was cleared of the murder charge but was convicted of manslaughter of both boys on grounds of diminished responsibility. Mary burst into tears while her mom and grandma wept behind her. Judge Cusack described Bell as a dangerous individual and that she posed a, quote, very grave risk to other children. Steps must be taken to protect the public from her. She was then sentenced to detainment at Her Majesty's pleasure for an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. In 1969, she was transferred to Red Bank Secure Unit, which was a young offenders institution. She was the only female out of 24 total inmates. She later spoke of the sexual abuse she encountered there by a staff member and several inmates that began at age 13. In November of 1973, when she was 16 years old, she was transferred again to a prison in Cheshire. She resented this transfer and applied for parole to no avail. In June of 1976, now a legal adult, Bell was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison, where she undertook a secretarial course. In September of the next year, Bell made national headlines once again. Her and another inmate named Annette Priest briefly escaped from the prison. They spent several days with two young men in Blackpool. Bell was going by an alias of Mary Robinson and had dyed her hair blonde. She visited amusements and slept in hotels. Annette and Mary separated at some point, and Mary was captured at the home of one of the men she had been staying with and returned to custody that evening. Annette was arrested just days later, and they both lost prison privileges for four weeks. In June of 1979, Mary was transferred again, and I have officially lost track of all of her transfers. This one aimed to prepare her for her eventual release that was planned for the next year. In November of that year, she worked as a secretary and then a waitress under supervision and hefty guidelines that prepared her for her release. After serving only 11 and a half years in custody, Mary was released in May of 1980 at 23 years old. We're going to try this again. She was granted anonymity and a new name. She started a new life elsewhere without her past following her, at least not on paper. A spokesman said, quote, Bell wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life and to be left alone. Fortunately, Mary laid low after her release and did not get in trouble with the law again, at least not from what we know. Four years after she was released, she gave birth to a daughter on May 25, 1984. This ended up being her only kid. Mary's daughter didn't know of her past until 1998 when reporters found their location in a resort town where they had been living for about a year and a half. The media surge forced Mary and her 14-year-old daughter to a safe house by undercover officers, and they eventually relocated to another part of the United Kingdom. It was confirmed that Mary returned to her hometown on several occasions, and she allegedly lived in this location for some time after her release. The anonymity for Mary's daughter was originally only until she reached 18, but it was extended in May of 2003 for both women. It was later updated to include Mary's granddaughter under the condition that none of them divulged aspects of their life that could identify them for who they actually were. Mary's current location is unknown and remains protected for the rest of her life.
1998, Mary collabed with author Jitta Serini to provide account, an account of her life for a 1998 book called Cries Unheard, the story of Mary Bell. This book included details of the abuse she suffered from her mother and clients. Relatives, friends, and professionals from all points of Mary's life were interviewed. Mary does not claim that she was wrongfully convicted and admits that the abuse she suffered does not excuse the crime she committed. Several books and documentaries were made, and this case was featured on several true crime shows. We do have very limited knowledge on what Mary got up to after her release and what the lives of her, her daughter, and granddaughter are like, but it does seem like she shows some sign of remorse for what she has done and is perhaps taking steps to better her life, which would be, I guess, the most positive outcome we could have hoped given everything that had already happened. And unfortunately, I couldn't find any information on Norma Bell, so hopefully she started picking better friends. So, that is the first case, Mary Bell. That was probably the most extensive case out of the three that we're going to cover, so the other two are slightly less intricate, but still very disturbing. All right, the next lovely little lad we're going to cover is Jesse Harding Pomeroy. Jesse was born on November 29, 1859, in Charlestown, Massachusetts. His parents were Thomas J. Pomeroy, who was a U.S. Civil War veteran, which is crazy to think about, and Ruth Ann Snowman. He was the youngest of two kids. His brother Charles was two years older than him. Jesse went on to become the youngest person in the history of Massachusetts to be convicted of first-degree murder. I'm not sure what it is about Massachusetts, but so many of these cases that we cover, including the boarding case, take place there. Jesse's life of crime began in 1871 and 1872, where there were several reports of young boys being individually enticed to remote areas and attacked by a slightly older boy. There was no one arrested, but these attacks had an extreme amount of brutality, including being beaten with a fist, belt, and sometimes a knife. Some boys were allegedly scarred permanently from these attacks. In 1872, Ruth, Jesse, and Charles moved to South Borden, haha, where the attacks, surprise, followed Jesse. He was finally arrested down there, and the case was heard in front of the juvenile court judge. Jesse was found guilty and sentenced to stay at a state reform school for boys until he turned 18. The Boston Globe stated, quote, It is generally concluded that the boy is mentally deficient. Also, side note, they did not move to South Borden, they moved to South Boston. My laptop must have autocorrected my notes because of how much I've been obsessing over the Borden case. Anyways, in February of 1874, 14-year-old Jesse was paroled back to his mom and Charles in South Boston, where his mom ran a dressmaking shop and Charles sold newspapers. A month after he was released, a 10-year-old girl named Katie Curran went missing, and a month after that, the mutilated body of 4-year-old Horace Millen was found in a nearby marsh. Detectives immediately went for Jesse given his history, despite lacking any evidence that actually connected him to these cases. However, lacking evidence didn't last long as the body of Katie Curran was discovered in the basement of his mother's dress shop. The remains were reportedly hastily and carelessly concealed in an ash heap. I didn't see this anywhere in my research, but I'm assuming Jesse's mother was questioned and found to have no knowledge of the body. Unless they had just already decided that it was Jesse and didn't think to question anyone else, which honestly, I can't even fault them in this particular case because they were right. Jesse was then taken to the body of the little boy and asked if he was responsible. 
At the inquest hearing, he was denied a right to counsel. The trial occurred on December 9th and 10th, 1874, in the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. He was found guilty of murder in the first degree on day three of the trial, but the jury requested mercy on account of his youth. Despite this request for mercy and several objections by his attorney, Jesse was sentenced to death by hanging. For his execution to be followed through with, the governor needed to sign a death warrant and assign the date for his execution. However, Governor William Gatson refused, like hard. The only way to spare Jesse's life was through the council if the majority of nine members voted to overturn. For the next year and a half, the council voted a total of three times. The first two times, the council agreed to follow through with the execution, to which the governor refused to sign the warrant once more. The third vote was taken anonymously in 1876, which finally changed his sentence to life in prison with solitary confinement. I would also like to add that my notes say solitary condiment. On September 7th of 1876, he began his life in solitary at 16 years old upon transfer to a state prison. While he was there, Jesse taught himself to read several foreign languages, including Hebrew. A psychiatrist confirmed this, stating that he had learned German with, quote, considerable accuracy. Jesse also wrote poetry and argued with prison officials over the right to have it published. He also studied law books and composed legal challenges to his conviction, as well as requests for a pardon. According to a Boston Globe article that was published after he died, he had made 10 to 12 determined attempts to escape with handmade tools that were found in his cell, including rope, steel pens, and a drill. The Globe also reported that he had lost an eye after trying to destroy the side of his cell with a redirected gas pipe. The same report claimed he had the, quote, greatest ingenuity and a persistence which is unprecedented in the history of the prison. Jesse never succeeded at escaping, but in 1917, his sentence was changed to allow him privileges that other life prisoners had. At first, he resisted, wanting only to be pardoned, like he would not take anything else. Then he adjusted to his changed circumstances and appeared in prison shows. In 1929, when he was an old, fragile man, he was transferred to Bridgewater Hospital for the Criminally Insane, and he died on September 29, 1932. I am not at all trying to justify what Jesse did, but I do think he deserved a more fair trial and possibly not parole, but I just feel like he was clearly somewhat smart if he learned all those languages. And I don't know, I guess he did deserve it, but it's still sad to think that he literally spent almost all of his life in prison from the time he was a teenager. Again, not justifying it or saying he deserved to walk free, but when you really think about it, it's just so sad to think that he, his entire life was in prison. That covers Jesse Pomeroy, like I said, a lot less detailed from Mary Bell, but still pretty disturbing. The last case we're going to cover in this episode is that of Peter Woodcock. Just as a fair warning, this case is significantly more gruesome and unsettling than the others. Um, the crimes are a bit more detailed and just not, not, it's, it's pretty, pretty gruesome. So I just wanted to give a fair warning on this one. So, Peter was born in Ontario, Canada on March 5th, 1939 to a 17-year-old factory worker named Weta Woodcock. The father never seemed to be in the picture, but Weta did breastfeed him for a month and then gave him up for adoption. Adoption records showed that he had intense feeding problems and cried constantly after being given up. 
Peter stayed in several foster homes and was always unable to bond with the family. After his first birthday, he was absolutely terrified of anyone who approached him and would scream at the top of his lungs. He also had strange, underdeveloped speech that sounded like whining animal noises. At two years old, he was treated for a neck injury, which supports the idea that he was abused by at least one of his foster parents. At age three, he was finally placed into a stable foster home with Frank and Susan Maynard, who had another son. It's unclear whether it was another foster son or their biological son, but regardless, it was a more stable environment for Peter. At this time, Peter would still absolutely scream at anyone who tried to approach him, but Susan became attached to the boy regardless. By age five, he still had not adjusted to social situations and became the target of bullies at school and in the neighborhood. During his adolescence, his foster parents, especially Susan, became worried about him and brought him to a hospital for sick children. There, he received extensive treatment and was ultimately sent to a private school where he failed to fit in. By age 11, he was described as an angry little boy. Children's Aid Society reported on him. This report stated, Slight in build, neat in appearance, eyes bright and wide open, worried facial expression, sometimes screwing up of eyes, walks briskly and erect, moves rapidly, darts ahead, interesting and questioning constantly in conversation. He attributes his wandering to feeling so nervous that just has to get away. In some ways, Peter has little capacity for self-control. He appears to act out almost everything he thinks and demonstrates excessive affection for his foster mother. Although he verbalizes his resentment for other children, he has never been known to physically attack another child. Peter apparently has no friends. He plays occasionally with younger children, managing the play. When with children his own age, he is boastful and expresses determined ideas which are unacceptable and misunderstood. After this report was published, violent fantasies began to present in Woodcock. A social worker heard him say, quote, I wish a bomb would fall on the exhibition and kill all the children, end quote. He was then sent to the School for Emotionally Disturbed Children in Kingston, where he began acting on strong sexual urges with other children. He claimed to have had consensual sex with a 12-year-old when he was just 13 years old. At 15 years old, Peter was discharged from the School for the Emotionally Disturbed Children and was re-enrolled at his private school. He bounced back and forth between his private and public school, being bullied at one and shunned at the other. Teachers remembered him as a, quote, bright student who excelled in science, history, and English, and who often got 100s on his tests. So once again, we have an incredibly smart child who, it really makes you wonder, like, if things had been slightly different, would it have gone differently for this kid? So Peter's foster parents obviously made sure he had everything he needed, but he had one possession that he really valued, which was his red and white bicycle. He used this bike to wander the area, even in the cold winters. He created a fantasy where he led a gang of 500 invisible boys on bikes, which he called the Winchester Heights Gang. His parents knew of this fantasy and likely chalked it up to an overactive imagination, but they were not aware that he had began sexually assaulting young children while he was wandering the area. On September 15, 1956, Peter became a murderer at 17 years old. He was riding his bike around Exhibition Place when he met 7-year-old Wayne Millette. He lured the boy away and strangled him to death. The body of Wayne was found early the next morning. It appeared that his clothing had been removed and he'd been sloppily redressed. His face was pushed into the dirt, and there was no evidence of rape, but bite marks were found on his calf and his buttocks. Pennies were found ritualistically scattered around the victim, and Peter had defecated next to his body. A Ron Moffat was brought in by Toronto police. He confessed after relentless questioning, despite witnesses placing him in a movie theater for the entire duration of the murder.
He was found guilty and sentenced to youth detention. Later, when police were aware that there was a serial predator, he still was not released. A book was published in 2018 about Ron's side of the story called The Boy on the Bicycle. On October 6, 1956, Peter was once again riding his bike around the area, this time in Cabbagetown. He picked up nine-year-old Gary Morris and drove the boy to Cherry Beach, where he strangled him and beat him. The postmortem exam concluded that his death occurred from a ruptured liver. Once again, the clothes appeared to have been removed and then put back on. The body was found with bite marks on the throat and paper clips were sprinkled ritualistically near the corpse, similar to the pennies in the first one. This next case is the one I was warning you about in the initial introduction of this case, so if you didn't listen to that first one, I am warning you this next murder is really, really, really disturbing. On January 18, 1957, Peter saw four-year-old Carol Voice when he was on his bike and offered her a ride. He drove her under a viaduct, where he choked her into unconsciousness and molested her. Her cause of death was ultimately discovered to be a tree branch inserted inside of her. Witnesses described a teen cycling away from the scene, which led to the creation of a composite sketch. This sketch ran on the front page of the Toronto Star and led to Peter's arrest on January 21, 1957. He confessed and later recalled about the incident that, quote, My fear was that mother would find out. Mother was my biggest fear. I didn't know if the police would let her at me, end quote. Peter was only tried for the murder of Carol Voice. On April 11, 1957, after a four-day trial, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was sent to Oak Ridge Division of a Max Security Mental Health Institution. While at this institution, Peter was diagnosed as a psychopath and underwent various forms of therapy, including LSD treatments. He was given other personality-breaking drugs and subjected to dyads, which was a personality-breaking therapy where inmates challenged each other's belief systems. This was referred to as the 100-day Hayden by inmates. Peter did not respond to any of this treatment and was not a very good prisoner. He engaged in coercive sexual acts and exploited his less intelligent and less sane inmates. He convinced them that he had contact with an imaginary gang called the Brotherhood and that to be initiated, they had to perform oral sex on him and bring cigarettes. For some reason, he was transferred to a less restrictive institution, Brockville Psychiatric Hospital. There, staff indulged his passion for trains and took him to a museum. They even took him to see Silence of the Lambs. For some reason. At this time, Peter changed his name to David Michael Kruger and rekindled a friendship with Bruce Hamill, another killer who he had met at Oak Ridge. Bruce Hamill had been working at a security guard at a courthouse after his release. Peter convinced Bruce that an alien brotherhood would solve all of his problems if he helped kill another inmate named Dennis Kerr. On July 13, 1991, Bruce went to the hardware store and purchased a wrench, a hatchet, knives, and a sleeping bag. He went to Brockville Hospital, signed out Peter, who was 52 at the time, on his first publicly escorted day pass. Within the first hour of his first unsupervised release in 34 years, he arranged to meet Dennis in the woods. When Dennis arrived, Peter struck him in the head with the wrench and beat him into unconsciousness. They then got the hatchet and knife that they had hidden in the bushes, hacked and stabbed him, mutilated him, nearly severed his head, and sodomized him. After, Peter walked to a nearby police station and turned himself in. I couldn't find what happened to Bruce Hamill afterwards. Peter was then transferred back to Oak Ridge Division, where he'd met Bruce in the first place. This was also where he had spent most of his life and probably considered home. 
After this murder, he was the focus of a biography and several documentaries. He even tried to explain why he killed, but couldn't come up with any answers that would make sense to anyone else. In a 1993 interview, he said, quote, I'm accused of having no morality, which is a fair assessment because my morality is whatever the system allows, end quote. On his 71st birthday, he died of natural causes. Following his death, the Toronto Star described him as, quote, the serial killer they couldn't cure. Like I said, I find that case incredibly gruesome. Obviously, they all are, but that one just really strikes a nerve in me. I know I said with Jesse Pomeroy that I almost feel bad that he spent his whole life in prison, but for this little fucker, I feel absolutely nothing other than rage and disgust. I also feel like he had way too much freedom and way too much fun while he served his time, but he's dead now, so there's nothing really I can do about that. Alright, so that was Peter Woodcock, aka David Michael Kruger. Alright guys, thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Bazaar, where we covered killer kids, including Mary and Norma Bell, Jesse Pomeroy, and Peter Woodcock. Like I said, I might release an episode 2.5 with the leftover cases that I researched, or I might just save them for a part 2 of this at some point, so be on the lookout, let me know which one you'd prefer. I'm honestly just glad this episode didn't come to 41 minutes like last week, but who knows, I still have to edit it, so it's a possibility. If any of you know what 41 could mean, please message me on literally any social media platform because it's driving me insane. Alright, I will see you guys next week at the Bazaar, your one-stop shop for everything bizarre.